Hello everyone. Welcome to Outspoken. My name is Justin White. I am your host. This is episode 81. I hope everybody's doing okay. Hanging in there. Not too stir crazy. Maybe uh, doing some creative stuff. Maybe connecting with your friends and family in whatever way you can do that. Um, And just generally staying safe and healthy and sane. So, um, my guest this week is a friend of my mom's who is now a friend of mine. Her name is Lindsay, and um, she has a pretty amazing story of uh, cancer diagnoses. Yes, that's plural. And um, her incredible uh, fortitude and uh, attitude that has gotten her through. And um, so she and I had a really great conversation. This was the first time we'd ever talked. And uh, yeah, we got into some good stuff. And so I will just get right to it. Um, But first, I wanted to let you listen to what it sounds like when a defunct light bulb meets a defunct battery. So do you want to just jump right in or do you want to get, you know, talk, talk about other things first or how, how do you, yeah, we can, we can jump right in. I mean, I'm sure it'll be kind of a conversation, but, um, I can just start by sharing, you know, what happened when you think about a story, you're kind of like, where do I begin? Because all lives are complicated and I've learned that they aren't just one thing. It's not a diagnosis or a tragedy or, you know, some kind of incredible thing that happens to you or a whole fabric of things. But I think starting with the diagnosis is um, a good way it's a good way to go and we can work, work around from there. Okay. So, um, I am 33 now, but I was diagnosed at 31. Um, I was a month away from getting married. I had a huge 200 person wedding planned in Napa. And, um, you know, the only thing I was really thinking about was whether or not we should have a raw bar. And, um, my life was really pretty privileged. And um, I was having this pain on the right side of my face for about six months. And I'm a nurse. So I would just walk over, you know, to the clinic across the street and go see whoever the primary happened to be on. And they kept telling me it was um, TMJ. And I was stressed out and clenching my jaw at night. And I got a night guard and it continued to actually get worse. And I actually went to the doctor five times. um, And they continued to turn me away. It wasn't until I started, I remember I we were down in Big Sur, I was with my husband, Stephen, and I was looking at a picture we took and I saw that on the right side of my face, I like wasn't smiling fully. It looked like it was slightly paralyzed and I hadn't even really noticed before then. And I started to look in the mirror and I was like, what is going on? I couldn't smile on the right side of my face. And so we got back from that trip 
and I went into the doctor and I was like, I need to see an ENT and get an ultrasound now. This is something is wrong. Um, and from there it moved pretty quickly. I got an ultrasound and we did a biopsy. Um, and I ended up being diagnosed with salivary gland cancer, which is 2% of cancers, men over the age of 65 that smoke. Whoa. I mean, so, so rare. And that's part of the reason that they continued to miss it. I mean, I was completely healthy otherwise. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was, um, it, you know, they, none of, no one really even knew what to say about it. I mean, they were just, it kind of showed the randomness of things. Um, but I've never even heard of it. And I know many people have had cancer and it's like, that's never come up once. Right. It was, I mean, I'm a nurse and they told me they're like, there's, it's in your parotid gland. And I was like, what is a parotid gland? (laughs) Where is that exactly? I mean, I felt totally, you know, and I'm in the medical system, which is, which was one of the hardest things for me was kind of feeling like, it, it wasn't that I wasn't advocating for myself either. It's just right. I really trusted my doctors. Um, did, when you were given the TMJ diagnosis, did that mm-hmm. resonate with you or did you have an inkling that that was wrong? You know, initially, I think you want to believe what they're telling you too. There is this kind of underlying, I think it is a knowing that you have that there's something more going on, but when they tell you, you know, it's a simple thing and just get a night guard. It's so much easier to go with that story than something further being there. And I really, I think it was a combination of things, but I did know because I went and saw some naturopaths and people doing different things. And, and I kind of knew that they, there wasn't, I wasn't getting a full picture at that point. Right. So, I got diagnosed and I still remember being in that doctor's room and how all of a sudden everything just, it like narrows in. It's, it's like it closes in around you in that room and time kind of stops. But I really, I, I kind of left my body too. I remember, you know, the sink was dripping and I just kept looking at the sink and I wondered, can I just like put my head under the sink and, and wash all of this away? Can I leave my body and exit this room forever? Wow. It was, it was nothing I've ever, ever experienced before. And I kind of went into an adrenaline overdrive place at that point. I just remember, um, not really being fully present, but they wanted to move forward really quickly with uh, surgery. The oncologist had told me it was a cell type they had also never seen before. It was similar to um, pancreatic cancer, which, you know, can kill you in weeks. And it was an aggressive cancer and they wanted to get it out immediately. So I had an 18 hour surgery. where they um, they cut my right facial nerve because it had infiltrated my facial nerve, which left me with right-sided paralysis on my face. Um, not being able to smile on that side. Yeah, not being able to smile. My eye doesn't fully close, so I have a weight in my eyelid. Um, and 
they removed a nerve from my right thigh and put it up in my face. So it's supposed to give you some movement. Um, but I have a humongous scar on my right leg. And, um, and it was, you know, I went in being like, Oh, yeah, yeah, it's surgery. Like, I just wanted it out of me. And I remember waking up in the ICU. And I was, I mean, after being under for 18 hours, my leg was in a really weird position during the surgery. So my leg hurt so badly. Like I had tubes coming out of my face, but all I could really think about was like my right leg was in so much pain because it had been in a weird position for so long. Is Um, is that where the nerve graft was? No, it was like, it was completely unrelated. It was just that it was bent bent weird. And oh my God, it was so, I just, I had never felt that way in my body. And the nausea because of how much anesthesia I had got was so bad. I mean, I, there are pictures that, you know, my family took and I look at those and I'm like, oh my God, you can go back there kind of immediately. Um, so, um, that was followed up with chemotherapy and radiation and, um, and then I was quickly diagnosed three months later, it had traveled to my lung, my right lung. So I had another really intense surgery. They took out my right upper lobe. um, And I had more radiation that followed that. And from that point on, um, it was considered stage four, which is incurable. And it kind of, at that point, it kind of changes the game. Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I was, I had never heard positive things. I never went in and they said, you know, you have a this percentage chance of getting better because there were no statistics. There was no research or data on my specific cell type of cancer. So I had never gotten a lot of reassurance. <laughs> and this moving forward was very clear that it was it was always going to be a part of my life, no matter how long I had to live. Um, and I think I had been kind of living from from the point of diagnosis until the second um, recurrence in a state of, um, I just wasn't present. And I was really depressed and um, I was completely traumatized. And I kind of realized with that second diagnosis that, okay, if this is going to be my life, how how do I actually want to live? It was that first kind of question that I had. And I had heard it and I could really kind of think about it before then, but it didn't really resonate. Um, and so that's when I kind of made a turn um, spiritually and mentally. And I I realized that I needed to, to deeply think about what it meant to be here and to be here now and how I wanted to live however long I had. Um, and how, how, sorry, how long yeah. would you say that took for you to like, you, you were, how long were you depressed before you had that sort of that, whatever you want to call it? Uh, yeah. Sort of <laughs> um, awakening, awakening. Yeah. I, I, um, I didn't want to use the word, that you weren't comfortable with, but I guess that that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think it was the entire time I was going through chemo and radiation. I was, 
pretty quickly, um, it, it had traveled to my lungs. So I, I didn't have long, it was, it was about four or five months. Um, and, and, and when I was, you know, it had gone there, that's really when that shifted for me. But I remember it was just countless days on the couch. I mean, I was super sick from chemotherapy and radiation too. So I was exhausted and sick, but it was really this deep, deep, like bone tired depression, like underwater, which I had never experienced. I have anxiety in my family. I've definitely dealt with anxiety my whole life, but that's kind of a different depression. It's like a cyclical, almost obsessive thinking. And this is this was really just a different texture for me. And it was scarier, I think. It sounds scary. Because yeah. you don't you don't see a way out. You don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. Exactly. It did kind of feel like drowning. Um but um there was a shift. There was a shift for sure. And um and that is when things kind of changed. And I do want to get into the spiritual aspect and all the things that I've been doing. But just to finish this part, um, so I started to feel better. Um, and it was, I decided to go on a trip to Europe with um, three of my girlfriends. And um, it was an incredible trip. We went to Paris first, and we ended up going to Italy afterwards. And it was on the island of Capri at this bougie beach club that um, I had a seizure. It was a grand mall um, tonic-clonic. You know, I was completely out um, seizure. And um, thank God I had my incredible friends with me that navigated the Italian healthcare system. None of them spoke Italian. And um I was basically on drugs from that point on. They started giving me Ativan because that's what you give for seizures. Um, but we realized when I got back that it had spread to my brain. Um, so I had a craniotomy. <laughs> and I mean, it's funny that I can laugh about that. It's kind of weird, but it that's it amazing. is crazy. And then um, I had radiation to my brain. And that wow. was eight months ago. Really? It was that recently? It was that. Well, what's funny is for me, it feels like it was so long ago. I think because this has all been so condensed. I mean, this is under two years now that this has happened. Um, but yeah, it was it was that recently. And um, I've realized also that because I think it's because I'm so young and healthy. Otherwise, my body rebounds really quickly from surgeries and treatments. So I mean, eight solid months of nothing happening, no progression. Um, and I'm currently just taking an immunotherapy, which is, um, it, it's not like the chemotherapy that I was getting. It's, there's basically been no side effects. And I'm taking, I just started a chemo agent um, that's in pill form that really hasn't caused that many side effects either. So I feel like I'm, healthy right now um you sound healthy yeah i mean i've sounded the same way the whole time which has also been kind of a thread is just realizing how strong my sense of self is outside of this and um how much i 
I knew myself as a result of things I had gone through prior to the diagnosis too. Um, but I'm, I've just realized how incredible I am as a human. I mean, I can really say that and own it after everything that I've been through, but I, I have an ability to kind of pick myself back up. Um, and I don't like the word silver lining because, because I just don't, but I, I do feel like I'm able to see, um, see light in the darkness. I really can. And I had, I didn't really know that about myself prior to this. Wow. So, yeah. And that, so that came out of your, your spiritual seeking? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it did. It did. Can we talk about that? Oh, yes. We can talk about that. Um, <laughs> well, I, um, I mean, we had talked about this a little bit, but I feel like I am a really open person um, and I'm a very curious person. So I, I, I'm basically open to trying anything. Um, and before this, I was kind of into wellness before, um, but it was more of, um, you know, how do, how do I make myself look better? It wasn't really about my general health or spiritual health. Um, but um, I really started to question what it means to be alive and to be here. And um, because I'm not religious, it kind of opened up all of these questions about death. I've kind of always had a fascination with it. It's part of the reason I also was interested in nursing. Um, I, I, I think from a young age, I was anxious. I know I always thought that when my mom and dad left, they were going to die. Um, but, you remember thinking that when you oh were little? Oh my God. Yeah. I was such an anxious kid. My mom called me um, her shadow because <laughs> I followed really? her everywhere. Yes. Yes. So you, re you actually thought if she left your site that she was going to die? Yes. Yeah, I wow. really did. I, yeah, I remember, um, I couldn't spend the night out until I was in junior high. I, I just had a lot of anxiety. I remember lying up with, um, with my parents and talking and I just, it was kind of always in me. I think I was very sensitive and, um, pretty intuitive as a kid. And I just picked up on a lot of things going on around me. Um, wow. Yeah. So That's yeah, it's amazing, but it also made for um, you, you deeply feel all of it, I guess you're very aware. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I can relate to that. I mean, I, I was you? a very sensitive and intuitive kid, but I don't remember having, that that type of anxiety or certainly not that level of anxiety mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. about my parents or anybody I think I just felt I felt sensitive to what to the surroundings and to how other people treated me especially mm -hmm. um, but I was never I didn't feel like I was lost without another mm -hmm. person I always felt like I was would just manage my little tiny body I'd somehow get by <laughs> That's an interesting way of putting it too. 
<laughs> but it's true. It is true. You felt like you could manage somehow, like you you were capable of of holding whatever came up. Yeah, and I and it wasn't something that I you know had to consciously work at. It just was a right. an innate thing that I feel lucky to have had because I, yeah. I felt I wasn't like a super confident. I mean, I think I was probably confident until I until my confidence was broken by bullies and mean adults. Um, mm-hmm. I think I was very self-assured and then it sort of went away and then I had to work to get it back. But, but as a, like a really, really young, like toddler, I felt like I was totally cool, could navigate whatever. Um, but I didn't really feel like I fit necessarily. Mm. Uh, mm. But anyway, yeah. back to you. No, no, no. I think that that's, I mean, I think that's something I've realized it's an underlying theme in. um, in most people's lives, I, um, yeah, I, I do want to talk a little bit about before and just who I was and what I dealt with, but I, I think it's an underlying, it's an underlying theme. People the not feeling anxiety. like they belong, oh, well, that. not feeling like they belong or there's some broken parts of themselves that they don't want to expose or show to the world. Yeah, I think that's a very, that's a human thing that it happens to all of us our psyche gets wounded at some point yeah we have to spend the rest of our life repairing it yes that's life work <laughs> <laughs> um okay so you were a very anxious child yes i was a very anxious child what was i even saying why was i going down that rabbit hole um i think you were setting the scene for um how your spiritual oh yeah 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 like why you why I went there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was an anxious child. Um, and I, I did have to do, um, a lot of work on myself. I, I, I had, um, I had two parents that were psychologists. They both had a PhD and I remember struggling. Um, I had an, I, I mean, all, all of this is said with the understanding that I had an incredible family. It was intact. I was very loved. Um, and, you know, we lived in the suburbs. We had a huge yard and a pool. I had a really great group of friends. Um, and it was overall, you know, a pretty peaceful time. Did swim team brownies, played tennis. I mean, all the suburb things you'd expect. <laughs> um, and, and I did, I really did have, um, I did have a stronger sense of self too. I think because I was so anxious, I did go inside myself at a pretty young age. Um, but um, it was around the age of 15. I remember I um, I started having problems in school and I had two intellectuals as parents and they wanted to get me evaluated right away. And um, I, I don't remember the exact, diagnosis it was it was some kind of learning disability I think like ADD and um long-term memory deficits some I don't even remember they'd know but I knew from that point on that I was somehow kind of different there was a label um and there was a way that I looked totally normal but I kind of always felt like I from that point on was not I, I wasn't a part of the group and I grew up in, in a suburb with pretty high achieving 
it was a high achieving community with high expectations about performance. Um, and I, I was not able to fit into that mold. Um, and I also right at that age developed very quickly physically. I got my boobs grew. Everyone thought I got a boob job cause they grew very quickly. Uh-huh. I, I developed, um, you know, just like a, feminine body very fast and I really was not I wasn't ready for that um and it it became um something that that other people focused on too or commented on and it was the first time I kind of realized as a woman your body isn't really yours um but I I don't remember the first time I I just remember feeling like I was too too much like my uh, you know walking around or other men looking at me I kind of felt like I don't know I felt like I was too big and too much and I don't remember the first time I actually made myself throw up but I do remember that it was only like a couple months that I realized that this really works like I lost about 10 pounds and it was you know, all of a sudden upperclassmen, popular, popular guys were noticing me and taking me to dances. And it was kind of, a, it was a way of, um, of layering up and, and kind of belonging or seeming like I belong from the outside, you would never know. Um, mm-hmm. But inside, I really felt like I was hiding, like I was fooling everyone. <laughs> So there's no one that had any idea, no friends or your mom or anyone? I actually told my friends, I had, a, I had, I have had and continue to have a really strong group of female friends. And I do remember telling them pretty early on. And um, my mom, who also struggled with an eating disorder that I did not know about until later in life, um, she knew, she knew pretty quickly what was going on because she knew all of the signs. Um, but you know, when something really works, it's kind of like any addiction when it really works, um, until you're actually ready to, to deal with it, it doesn't matter who knows or who wants to help fix you or what therapist you go to. Um, it's not going to (laughs) change. Right. And you even, in my experience, you even sort of give up on trying to hide it all that well once you know that people are onto you you're just like oh well I'm I'm that's who I am now yeah yeah it it's true I mean and when something works you I mean it it, all of a sudden like that vulnerability and rawness and brokenness was covered up by this the thin kind of the thin ideal and fitting into a mold it wasn't it it wasn't my mold but it was a mold and um it's sort of the the societally imposed mode exactly (laughs) exactly um so i um ended up not graduating with my class i went to an in-treatment facility um and that was after struggling with it for a couple years at that point um and really struggled until I um, 
met this therapist that I actually am now currently seeing. And I really feel like she shifted so much for me. It was probably developmentally part of it too, but, um, I really started to do work. Um, and that, at that point I really, um, started to kind of wanted to, I wanted to look at how I learn and how to be a student and, um, and I started to develop other ways of um, building up my sense of self. Um, so I started to do well in college and started to go to all those broken places and really explore them. Um, and um, I think that's when I did a lot of a lot of mending. It was really painful, but I looked at a lot of pieces of myself. Um, and I ended up graduating undergrad and I decided my grandma was a nurse and I just thought she was the strongest, most incredible person. And it kind of felt out of reach. And for that reason, I really wanted to do it. So I, um, I took prerequisites and um, did really well. And I ended up getting into nursing school and graduating with honors and got a job in labor and delivery, one that I really wanted. And I felt like I I had kind of proven a lot to myself at that point. Like I had really fixed those pieces, um, which was incredible. It was, it was yeah, a lot. That sounds like a lot. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you walked right into the challenge rather than, you know, avoid. Yeah. You just, you just took them right on, which is amazing for anyone to do. Yeah. I think it is. It, you realize kind of after it is it's in my nature too to kind of walk walk into it and and you have to be ready you know after I went to that inpatient treatment um, in Utah I went to Boulder Colorado to kind of like a halfway house but it wasn't all people that had eating disorders it was all kinds of addictions and mental health issues. And I lived in like a house with women. And so I went to a lot of Al-Anon groups and AA groups and you just kind of realize the human experiences. It's the, you know, all of the suffering that we kind of create with addictions and escapes are all just, it's an underlying feeling of wanting to belong and be loved. Um, yep. That's, that's basically yeah. it. That's the, that's, if you had to whittle it down to the, the core need, I think that's mm -hmm. definitely it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I got that a lot existentially and I did feel pieces of it, but it, it wasn't really until I was diagnosed that you realize how much of this journey is just with yourself and mm -hmm. um, how many pieces of, you know, there's still kind of a, a feeling like I was doing things maybe for other people too, not just fully for myself. And it was the first time that I realized, you know, you can spend a whole day outside in the sunshine just with yourself and that, that can be enough. Just how much you begin and end with just you.
hate to ask this, but were you given a prognosis after your last? No, that's a totally reasonable question to ask. I have like gone back and forth. I love that oncologists are starting to steer away from giving numbers um, because I do yeah. think that that's really, it's mostly detrimental to people. It kind of. Yeah, it's um, like a death sentence. Right. Right. As human beings, we're not supposed to live like that. So I really respect the fact that my oncologist hasn't. There was one point that I think I asked him, I said, can you give me a number? It was during a really desperate period of time. And I just felt like I needed to know. And he actually said to me, you know, we haven't known the whole time with you, Lindsay, like, we don't know. I, we know that there's still treatment. And, um, you know, we know that, that we're going to continue, but I can't give you a specific number. I don't know. So you've already defied science too many times. Oh my God. Way too many times. I mean, technically (laughs) I do think that that first surgeon really did save my life. He did. It was such an intense surgery and, um, but I really technically shouldn't even be alive at this point. (laughs) I mean, yeah, you the the triple crown or what you know right. you've gotten right. three very intense cancers right uh, that none of which are easy to overcome and you're right so walking strong so good for you yeah good for and my man. body yeah yeah well in your spirit I mean you do you're doing you're you're proactively doing something to stay here and vibrant and you know mm-hmm. that's that's huge i think i think that's why people can recover from things that no one thinks they can is if they if they believe they can mm-hmm. then they they do yes so, yes i um, really do believe that so what do you how do you approach living knowing that you know there is a possibility it'll you'll have a shorter than average mm-hmm. life Well, I think that, um, you know, there, you have to get used to kind of living with a certain amount of grief too. I mean, just the loss of the life that you thought that you were going to have. I really wanted to have children and, um, you know, you just think that there's a loss of ignorance too. It's like all of a sudden you realize that we're all living with a, with a certain amount of fragility and we all are living in paper walls and life is very precarious. And so um, the beauty in that is you kind of realize that you just have right now and it does make you um, love deeper and it does make you more present. Um, But I think I've, I've really learned how to be more gentle with myself. I kind of always felt this restlessness and like I needed to be moving forward and doing things and um, progressing and checking the next box. And I have had accomplishing. Yes. Like physically and mentally and on paper doing things. Um, Yeah. And that, freedom was huge. I remember initially being like, Oh, I can totally take myself out of this race. Like I, that's done. (laughs) That's great. Um, That's, that's a a gift, even though it 
is not the prettiest wrapping. That's a really amazing gift to receive. And you can yes. get out of that race and uh, yes. just be. Yes. Yeah. But the being is also, you know, then what, what does it mean just to be? And for someone who's so used to um, taking challenges on and, you know, really doing the next thing, what does it mean to just be? So um, I have accepted the waves of life that some days I wake up and I feel like it's absolutely impossible to get out of bed. Like I can't fathom facing anyone or anything and, and it can come completely out of nowhere and, and just allowing that to be without judgment or force and no shame about it, um, has been huge. And some days I wake up and I want to be talking to everyone and outside and, um, and super present. I've just, I've, really been able to live in, in both of those places. Um, and that's also a gift. I mean, I think it's actually how most people live in, in smaller, not completely on that spectrum, but just in general, we're never one way. Um, but there's a lot of shame around suffering or around not being perfect or not, you know, just being curated for everyone else. Um, right. And that's a gift, you know, just feeling like I do not have to do that or sign up for that at all. <laughs> and everyone will understand. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that it's in some ways you have a free pass. to. Yeah. Cancer <laughs> <laughs> is the freest pass. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But it, yeah, but it's, it's not really free. It's a mm -hmm. hell of a toll to pay mm -hmm. to get that, that ticket. But then moving forward, you can, you can really do whatever you want and nobody's going to try to stop you. I think. Yeah. And I think initially I was like, okay, if that's the case, it was like the old mindset where I was like, okay, if I can really do whatever I want, then I have to do everything. I have to, you know, there was like a right. whole, I started to realize just how much I hate bucket lists because it's more pressure on some level too. Right. Yeah. Cause as soon as you put something on the list, there's a feeling that you have to do it or you right. failed. Right. And, right. And that's not a great mindset to put yourself in for any reason. I mean, right. It's kind of like, what do I have to show for my life? And if you're living from that place, it's just an unbelievable amount of pressure. Yeah. Because who are you? Who are you showing it to? And who's the judge? And how do you score that? Mm -hmm. You know, like that, all that stuff, because it's so arbitrary, leaves you feeling hopeless. Like you could never possibly achieve in the way that you're supposed to. Exactly. Exactly. I think. I think there is this kind of human desire, though, to feel like, you know, you were here, you you um, were on this earth for a period of time and not like it needs to be leaving a mark, but um, that you were lived and, or you were, you lived and you were loved and you weren't for nothing. Right. Yeah. I think people do think like, you know, think that way. It's hard not to, you mm -hmm. know, what, what will my legacy be? Mm -hmm. Whether you're some super, 
notable person or not, you want to be, you don't want to be forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's understandable. And then I think you start to realize, you know, in a hundred years from now, most everyone that you know will not be alive. <laughs> right. All of a sudden you're like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> But the strange thing is that in our culture, the way that we think about being remembered is to have this whole list of achievements or some title by our name. Right. Instead of just, instead of like, wow, that that was a really nice person or that was a Mm -hmm. very loving human being. You know, Mm -hmm. I like thinking about them. They were great. Like that would be a nice thing to have on your epitaph or, you know. Right. Right. But we're so achievement oriented that it's hard to get away from, even if you don't believe in that yourself. It's so true. And it's so easy to kind of get sucked back into that, especially in the Bay Area and, um, you know, in the group of people that I still am a part of. They really are moving forward in a lot of the conventional ways with families and with their jobs and it's really still kind of the ramping up of life at this stage. Um, So then how to not, you know, how to still be here and be a part of the people's lives that I've, that I love and also not be in that place at all is it's, it's a really weird thing to navigate. I can imagine. Yeah. I don't, I have no idea. I mean, I, I have, constant feelings of inadequacy that probably I carried with me through, you know, from very young childhood Mm -hmm. and I, and I can't help but apply them to my current life. Anytime I look at, you know, anytime you make any kind of comparison, you're just Mm -hmm. like, well, I I fell short, I guess, because somebody else is always doing more. Right. But, but who cares? Like that's the, you aren't living their life. That's not really, we're not really meant to be, constantly comparing ourselves to each other. I think it's really damaging. It's so damaging. It's, I mean, I just feel so much for the generations under us. We always have, I mean, I think it's an innate human thing as well to compare, but now it's all on blast. It's on every social media platform and right. there's just always going to be people doing better than you always. I mean, and what does that yeah. mean? <laughs> Nothing really. That's right. that's so sad about it. It means nothing, but it but it means everything if you allow it to. Right, right. But that's a certain type of purgatory, and it it I don't know. It doesn't lead to um. It doesn't really lead to anything actually, <laughs> besides it's suffering. Unhappiness. Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. I wish there were a way to convey that to someone and have them really get it. I mean, I think it's, I think it is up to each individual to arrive at that realization on their own. Right. But but we need to help. We need to help those coming after us understand that it's, I mean, because I I say that stuff to my daughter. I try to Mm -hmm. help her understand that it's nonsense, but it's not nonsense to her. It's right. Like, it's know, real. She's, she's living in it. It's what everybody's focused on. So it's very real. And, uh, and I don't want to belittle her or say like what you're, what you're focused on isn't important. Mm-hmm. I just want to help her understand that someday it's not going to, 
carry the same weight that it does now. Like it's it's not that important, even though it feels like it's life or death right now. Um, it's it's such a hard thing to do, especially with that age. I mean, it kind of goes back to I'm sure experiences that you had at that age, and you know what I know too is that it feels like everything. Um, yeah. And I think it it's you know, tenfold in terms of what we experienced. Right. Yeah, I think so. I can't even imagine. I mean, we all think that whatever we're living Mm -hmm. is, is the extreme or is the, you know, like we know more than anybody else knows, um, which is true as it pertains to your own life. But right. uh, Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine what just the intensity must be like at this stage in the world there's so much mania there's so much mania it is and i will tell you this whole COVID thing i mean i don't know how much you want to get into any of that but i i am um, happy to talk about it i mean i think politically for a while it's been there's been an unreal amount of uncertainty and kind of panic um at least for me personally but um i think this COVID thing has been so interesting because, um, you know, one of the weirdest things for me was when I was diagnosed, I really felt like my whole world stopped. Like the weirdest thing for me was that people were continuing to move on and go to work and post on Instagram. And I felt like my whole, like the floor fell out from underneath me and it's really isolating. I really felt like I was on an Island. Um, And when this, you know, when COVID started to really, I remember when we all went into quarantine and it, and people's responses to, um, to, to not knowing to the uncertainty, but also to having their whole worlds be shifted. You know, you really are living in a place, place of privilege if you haven't had something like that happen to you. Um, and all of a sudden, um, everyone was kind of in a state of panic and I kind of felt like, welcome. This is where I've been living. This is where I've been living for the last year and a half. Like I step aboard my Island. Yes. Yes. Like for the first time, the world was stopping just like mine had. Um, And so, yeah. It was, and I didn't even really realize it. It actually wasn't until I went to one of your, I was in your mom's writing workshop and she said, you know, do you want to write about COVID? And I was like, no. And then all of a sudden I was like, whoa, I have a lot to process here. And I started writing about it and I don't know, realized there was a weird solidarity for me for the first time ever, you know, kind of globally. Right. That's, Um, yeah, that's. Amazing. But we don't do well in uncertainty. Human beings want, we want to know. And it's, it's so weird when people with, you know, all these plaques on their walls and, you know, these prestigious medical schools that they went to, they're, you know, years of work that they've done and they still can't tell you. Um, it's a scary thing and it's a really scary thing for people to see suffering and to see death. Um, because as a society, we don't want to look at that either. 
Definitely not in this society. There's yeah. such a strong taboo around death, mm-hmm. uh, and which probably is the reason that we've had we've been in total denial uh, about you know how to handle it and and how real it is. We've sort of, I mean, not just the administration, but a lot of people just don't want to admit that it is necessary to quarantine, and you know, right? It's it's real. Like it's you you can't. I mean, I noticed it in the, and you probably did too, in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. even though we've been sort of now talked about as the as the model for how to do it, mm-hmm. what I noticed right off the bat was people were like, oh, work from home, cool, it's like a vacation, <laughs> and they just would go to the cafes and go, like, I know. you know, I'd be walking around San Francisco, and there are people <clears throat> everywhere, mm-hmm. and they, like, nobody seemed to get it, that this was like a real thing, it wasn't just don't go to work it's stay home like get Mm -hmm. in your house and stop touching everybody and um it was to me i was it was really frustrating because i just kept seeing people ignoring it and and even still and i think it probably stems from a a few things but one of them is the is the sort of united states we're free we're cowboys here we do Mm -hmm. what we want just don't want to listen to the rules um but that's, the, I mean, the level of entitlement it takes to yes. <laughs> to yes. live that way is just out of control. Well, and it's a certain amount of invincibility, right? It's like you're hearing stories about what's happening, what's happening in Italy, and it's still kind of this separation, you know, like, oh, that's happening to you, but that that will not happen here. Like, that's right. not, no way. It's yeah. so crazy to me that our that our arrogance can achieve such mm. such you know towering heights yeah. to yeah. think that way like why why would it not happen that way here it's a virus it's mm-hmm. not you know there's no it doesn't have a different set of rules when it crosses an imaginary border that we drew right you right know? well that's i mean i think that's that is the powerful part of this is it's not the obviously populations that are more vulnerable and, um, you know, they're going to be impacted much faster than others, but it goes across all so- socioeconomic status. There is no, no one is exempt from, um, from illness. And I think that is, that is really scary for people. Again, it's kind of like, well, yeah, we live in a very capricious state. We are, we are as beings fragile, and that is not something that people want to look at. It's the same reason that you don't want to talk about or look at death. Um, and I think it brings up a lot for people, and it's been super interesting for me from my perspective. I never would have felt like this before, um, and it would have been my first experience really having to look at it personally. But Yeah, it feels good to have people on my island now.
yesterday I went, my immunotherapy is an infusion that I get every three weeks, and I went into the cancer center, and that's always a place that I kind of know I have to zip up emotionally before I walk into, and um, I just, it was a hard one yesterday, just seeing, I kept being, everyone seemed like they were crying. I walked Mm. up and a guy was buckled over, you know, unable to breathe um, and screaming because he was so scared. And it was just really intense. And I, um, I remember actually feeling like I want to turn off everything. Like, I wish I had a switch where I could just be like, vacating now like I cannot yeah. feel anymore um but I've wanted to switch oh, so so many times right so for so long I'm sure we all do I mean I'm sure that's a that's a common thing um, yeah well that's what alcohol is good for and drugs and I mean opiates right. that's that is what we reach for because it can feel like too much yeah that's the closest thing to that switch that we've been able to make for ourselves, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also super destructive. Also which, ruins your life. Yes. Right. But maybe that's, maybe that's the metaphor. Maybe that's what we're supposed to, to really get is that turning off the feelings isn't the answer. That's not, that's not how you get through. And that's not what's actually helpful. Right. The thing that's helpful is to be in it and live through it and learn from it. Yeah, and really let it's it is really allowing emotions to be there and and knowing that they'll pass. I think what I always felt was, oh my God, this is coming on. I can feel sadness or I can feel, you know, anxiety or whatever it is, fear, and I want to shut it down. You know, I do not want to go through it. I just want to push it away and. I've really realized I can't, I have not been able to do that. You can't shut some of this down. It's just too big. Um, And so I've had to go through it. And the surprising thing for me each time is that it passes. It does pass. Um, But um, if you push it away, it's it's living in you somewhere. It doesn't actually go away. It always comes back around if you right. try to push it. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. And that and that is kind of the foundation of almost every spiritual teaching. Yes, you know, that's they, it. They, they're impermanent and they will pass. But it's so strange that we, we can't, you can't hold that principle without actually practicing it all the time. That's yeah. been my experience. Like as soon as I'm not reading some something about that or trying to do you know, I mean, I don't really, I've never really had a, a good meditation practice or anything, any kind of daily ritual that keeps me in it. But mm-hmm. I've, for decades, I've been doing all manner of various things to try to find that feeling, you know, that understanding. And, uh, mm-hmm. but, I, but I feel like as soon as I step away from it, I go back to the default of just, you know, push it away or do something to divert or do, you know, it's crazy. It is. It is. And I still do that too. Are you kidding? I mean, I can have something come up and be like, oh shit, here we go again. Yeah. Um, and I can try to run from it, but I'm, I'm less 
I do that less now, I will say. And I try to do things daily to keep myself, you know, in that place. Um, but God, we can't, I mean, unless you're a Buddhist monk and you are not in the world at all. Right. I think that's so hard to, to just, it's not a black or white thing. I, I don't think that that's possible. Sometimes I get, so I'll, I'll be reading some spiritual text written by, you know, not necessarily a Buddhist monk, but written by somebody who is sort of outside of the real world in some mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And I get so mad. I'm just like, like, of course you can do it. Of You're course. Sitting on a mountain somewhere with nobody bugging you. Like, if you I look, have, yeah, yeah. You don't have to work. You don't have all these things that rub you the wrong way. You're in paradise, you know? So, but I want to, you know, I think there are other things that have been written by people who are, you know, in prison or somewhere where it's not, mm -hmm. there's nothing, you know, outwardly good about the situation and they still can find that peace somehow. Oh my God. That's the stuff that I resonate. That's what I want. It's like, how do you do it when you're in the midst of the suffering? Yes. Um, yes. But the suffering is, is so often self-imposed or maybe always self-imposed if you're able to extract the you know all the all the things that we believe about other people causing it because it's usually not the, the case it's it's just us being you know dissatisfied with reality or what with, with you know our expectations weren't met and that's what's causing the suffering yes yes so many yeses. I think um, when I was going through radiation twice, um, it was like six weeks and I had to wear a mask. And I was, it was like a mesh mask that went over my face and my chest. And it's, you know, secured to a table. So you cannot move at all. And you're completely covered. For people that are claustrophobic, they have to take like medication for each treatment. But I remember you go inside this kind of like an MRI looking machine for around 15 to 20 minutes. And I remember just being so scared for the first couple times and feeling so just so freaked out. And I, I don't remember exactly what day or what had happened, but there was a switch and I all of a sudden was like, Oh, this is a choice. Like I can be living in so much fear and, anxiety and I can also choose to be free somehow in this to um I don't it, it wasn't escaping but it was um where I was in my head like where I allowed myself to go um and that is in your control you can be strapped down to a radiation machine or you can be you know there's so much spiritual text about being I mean, it goes back to like Jesus, but just like suffering, but still being, um, I don't know, still being present for it somehow and getting to choose how you respond. That is a freedom that you always have. Um, but it's not something that's taught in our, you know, it's not something that we believe we're in control of. No. Absolutely not. And before that, I didn't, I didn't feel like it was. I mean, I, I, even though I meditated, I didn't really get that 
my thoughts are creating so much of my reality. Right. Yeah, I don't think most people do get that um, mm -hmm. until they until they get it. Mm -hmm. And then <laughs> they forget it. Right. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Like they just the default for I think most people is just to go back to this idea that you are the victim of external factors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I maybe it is just a one by one thing. Like every individual needs to have the experience that teaches them that mm -hmm. in order to actually get it once and for all, or, or maybe still temporarily. Yeah. And I think, um, it has to happen at the right time. And I do think it's, it is a remembering over and over cause you'll, you'll feel it or you'll have that aha moment and then that passes or you forget and something else happens. I think that's, that's part of the journey. I, I, you can hear people talk and you can read and you can do the incredible deep dive into what everyone has said, like I've done. And it's still, um, I don't know, it has to be something that you really experience to feel in my, it, for me, for me, I don't know. Other people maybe are much better at hearing life lessons and applying them. That hasn't been my story. <laughs> I don't know too many people that just pick it up from someone else's experience. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's, it sinks in little by little, every little bit that we learn along mm -hmm. the way. Mm -hmm. But I, I really feel like it's, that's not, at least now in human history, that's not our nature to be to just sort of uh, absorb that information and, and then be able to put it into practice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like we need to be smacked across the head <laughs> to get it. You know? Truly smacked. I know there are all these incredible people and, um, you know, I, the more stories I read, the more you realize that they, they had these um, awakenings as a result of usually something really terrible. Right. <laughs> it is, it's not usually just, you know, I lived, I did this, I did this. And then all of a sudden I had a spiritual awakening. Right. I was minding my own business, doing my own <laughs> selfish stuff. And I just woke right up to it. Right. Right. Yeah, it doesn't happen that way. But isn't that strange that we need to have a, a trauma or some mm -hmm. sort of tragedy in order to be, to have a revelation? Well, and some people do and they still don't. I mean, some people have really bad things happen to them and then they define that as, you know, the world is a terrible place and this is all That's... terrible. I mean, there are a lot of different ways that you can go. Um, Definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the part that we learn from others. We get to see someone like you modeling the, the you know, the rebound from this, from multiple occasions to, that could have been taken, uh, you know, you could have easily played the victim mm -hmm. uh, and just said like, well, this life is cruel and I'm, you know, it's not fair, mm -hmm. but you're not doing that. Well, so, I've thought that for long periods of time. Definitely life is not fair. I believe that still. Well, yeah, it's not. I mean, fair is 
is subjective any way you slice it. There's mm-hmm. no there's no way to make it fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what I mean, though, right? I mean, yeah. it's not you're not just buckling under the under the weight of it and saying I give up. You're saying, all right, I I get it. I'm going to move forward now. I have this new new view of life, and that's amazing. And I think that really that's how people uh, foster hope. They, when they see other people able to overcome these seemingly insurmountable hurdles, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I think that really helps other people to see. I know that it does. I mean, I know just talking to you, I can feel it. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's something that it it really helps people to hear that you can get through. You can get through anything, you know, That's... with with the right attitude. That really means a lot to hear, because like I was saying, I, I think one of the main things that that we do as humans and me, I've really felt that you don't want to be for nothing, that even if it's impacting, you know, one person to hear what you've been through, I think, I think that's part of why I've kind of always wanted to be a truth teller. Um, I think that's part of what I my eating that's... disorder was about, too. Sorry, what was the last thing you just, said? Oh, no, I, I think that's part of what my eating disorder was about, too. Just kind of feeling like I needed to use my voice, and I didn't really know how at that point. I didn't have the tools to do that. Um, right. But, yeah, being able to share and all of the broken parts, too. I mean, I think that's what people can really relate to. Definitely. And it's the, it's the really where the value lies, I think. Because mm-hmm. talking about what's right and everything that's working is basically just bragging. Right. Right. You know? If you're talking about what you perceive to be wrong with you, but you still want to go forward and, and work on it, then everybody gets it. Like, oh, yeah, I have one of those things. I have lots of those things. Right. And I think there's also this layer of kind of being inauthentically um, seeming genuine. I I don't know if that makes sense, but just, um, you know, you can kind of give pieces, but not fully what's going on. So people can think, which I think I got really good at was making people believe that I was actually really connecting with them and sharing and going to all the painful places when there were still parts of myself that I wasn't, um, fully sharing, like keeping hidden. Um, and there's kind of like a weird fucked up power in that too. Um, yeah, I get that. And I think, I think I got really good at doing that. And it, it actually wasn't really even until I was diagnosed that, um, I realized that I, not only do I not want to hide, but I can't anymore. Yeah. Well, the thing that's strange about that, because I've experienced that too, um, just that, you know, sort of walking the walk and, and convincing others that you're who, you know, you, you are what you say you are. Mm-hmm. You always know that you're being a fraud. If right. You're, you know, you always feel it yourself, even with that sense of power or with any whatever else you're deriving from that, you will feel like a fraud and you can't live with yourself like that yeah for very long i mean it just it's super painful to to think like 
I'm not authentically myself. Right. Even if I convinced everyone else that I am, I know I'm lying and it sucks. It's such a shitty feeling. It's, it is such a shitty feeling. there's a way that you're able to hold um, other people as a community. I read somewhere that monkeys, when they're um, stressed or when they're scared, they all huddle together and they like start picking at each other. And I thought about that a lot through this, just how much you kind of innately come together in the middle of fear. Like that is the best, that is the best side of, of us as a species that we do are are it seems like for me the innate part of us wants to come together like we do feel that and know that that's important i think so too we've just been far removed from it uh, through this this weird rule book that we wrote for ourselves Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you think i think there is sorry go ahead um do you think that COVID is, is changing that or exposing? I sure hope that's one of the side effects. Mm-hmm. I think, I think it's, um, I, I mean, I believe if you try to zoom way out and look at it from a, you know, from the perspective of the universe or for, of some underlying uh, divine order or however you view these things, it does seem very possible that this is a, you know, it, it feels like a very intentional wake up call. Like, mm-hmm. Hey, everybody, we remember what we used to do and how we used to comfort <laughs> each other and support each other. And like, that's still available to you. Here's, here's your chance. Mm-hmm. And I do think that a lot of the, a lot of people, whether they believe in any of that or not, a lot of people do respond that way. My concern is that there there's so many layers of distraction and removal from what from our true selves mm-hmm. that it's going to be hard for a lot of people to even know that that's available to them. And I, you know, because it, you know, we're all being forced to stay home, or some of us anyway. Mm-hmm. But we still have the internet. We still have all the. We right. still have Netflix, and we still have all these things that aren't really bringing us together. Um, 
I mean, maybe Zoom meetings are the are the closest thing to yes. what we can do right now. But um, I don't know. I do think on a on a grand scale, that is what this is about. Like this is this is sort of our chance mm -hmm. to remember. Like, mm -hmm. hey, people, we're we are a social species. We are monkeys who should huddle <laughs> together, hug each other, and groom and mm -hmm. be comforted. Mm -hmm. That's that's what we are. That's why we're here for each other. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I would love to see that be the outcome. My concern is that there are all these layers of other things like financial worry and, yes. and you know, <clears throat> like if the economy tanks, which it certainly appears to be doing, people are going to have a new fear to, you know, enlist themselves in mm -hmm. and be part of that movement. I'm going to, you know, I think that's the real thing is like, if you're, if you live in fear of, of whatever, you know, future outcome you can't possibly see, mm -hmm. then you're, you're always going to be trapped. Exactly. Um, and if you can get, and I'm not good at this, but I understand it. Uh, but if you can be present enough to say like right now, all we need is this. Like mm -hmm. right now, what we need is love and comfort and support. And if you can do that, then I think it will happen if enough people do that. Um, so I don't know. That's sort of a a very non-definitive answer to your question. But no, I, that's I want beautiful. Thank you. I mean, that's what it's what I want, and it's what a lot of people want. I, mm -hmm. And I really hope that we can push for that. Um, but I think we have to work at it. I don't think it's just going to naturally happen. No, no, it's definitely not going to naturally happen. But I do think, I mean, it's one of the huge issues with administration, but I think that is what leadership looks like, is kind of seeing fear and being able to um, to create enough hope and also to kind of guide people through that. Um even if everyone doesn't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> right. At least we're kind yeah. of doing it together. Yeah, we do. You do sort of need a spokesperson yes. to, to encourage you to move in that direction. Yes. Yeah. Which is why Bernie was such a beautiful, Oh God. you know, he's, he's the one, he was it. And, uh, but as you can see, our society's not ready for that yet. We're, we're turning him away or, you know, crucifying him, so to speak. Oh my God, you and my husband need to have a whole separate Bernie conversation. I'm actually <laughs> done with Bernie because all he talked about for a very long time until, you know, a couple of days ago was Bernie. But yes, I do. Yeah. I do think that um, that that is the ideal. Yeah. Well, and he helped, he helped push the conversation. Mm -hmm. He helped it get people talking about stuff and that that's going to continue. He's, he started you know, a movement. He did. And I, sure. yeah. 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 I love that guy. Uh, <laughs> Me and, too. I, and uh, I mean, I, there are a lot of people who, who could fulfill that role, but we have to first be ready to listen to them. Yeah. At, you know, on mass, like we can't half the world isn't ready yet. No, no, our country and, uh, isn't. Yeah. And so I think there's, we're going to have to go through a few more cycles, uh, not just political cycles, but life cycles, mm -hmm. generations mm -hmm. before 
that before enough people are ready to hear that message, uh, and then the change will come. So sadly, I don't think it's going to be in our lifetime or even my daughter's lifetime, or, mm. you know, who knows, but I do think it's the staying in the movement is what's important. Yes. Staying in it. And also, I mean, I think there are things that we never could have predicted. Again, I, I have imagined a lot of different futures for myself living through a pandemic <laughs> was <laughs> no. uh, not one of them. <laughs> Nope. Yeah, didn't even make the list. No, it uh, never made the list, especially not like a, I would never, never. Um, but I think um, staying open and um, and staying in both places, you know, knowing that um, the country isn't ready for some of the changes that that I know I am and a lot of my community is it doesn't also mean that um, that there can't be major changes that happen hopefully sooner rather than later too. Right. I hope so too. And, and just to have the, to, to, to fight for that, mm-hmm. whether or not you're going to see the benefits from it. Yes. I think it's important to, and that's a hard thing for us to grasp too. A lot of like in this culture anyway, like doing something. I mean, that's why socialism didn't really catch on. It's like, well, why would I do that? It doesn't, doesn't help me directly. Yes. You know, what what am I going to get out of it? So I think we have to change that mindset. And I think that's what's happening. That's why these conversations and you know, what's going on right now, that's changing that conversation too. Yes. Yeah, there's nothing like dealing with the uh, medical system. Oh, man. I mean, yeah, yeah, I think all of it is just, yeah, yes. <laughs> it, it almost gets to be too much, too. You know, when I was first diagnosed, again, another freedom I had was, like, just ducking out of everything. I was very interested in politics and read all the time and... I was just like, fuck it. I can't be bothered. It was so dark. And I was like, I cannot be bothered to go down that. I can't go down that road. I'm dealing with staying alive. Um, And now that, again, it's been a period of time of being healthy and feeling good, I have started to go back there. And you can really quickly kind of lose yourself in it. Start just reading and taking in everything and um and that's not good either you know you kind of have to find you really right now have to find a balance um because it's it's again it can be too much to bear and it's there's not a there's not a direct solution right now and there's no new information so why do i spend two hours reading about stuff that i yeah i don't that's a great it's a great question and one that everyone should be asking themselves. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it really does, and it sort of has always been about what you can do right now. What's you know what's going to help right now? Mm-hmm. And if you can keep asking yourself that question in every every waking moment, then things like fear and anxiety will will take a back seat because there's no. Those are both projections you know that's not those aren't real like fear is it is anxiety about 
the future, right? It's like an, it's right. there's something unknown, and I'm afraid of it, but you don't know what it is. Right. Uh, you're just creating it. You're creating a story that hasn't happened. So if you don't tell that story and you just look at what needs to be done right now, you actually can get things done and, and stop living in fear. You are literally that again. That's like the, I think almost all spiritual leaders are basically saying that. I mean, it is being here now, which is something that takes great effort, unless, again, you're living in a monastery up at the top of a mountain. Um, and you have to continue to come back to that over and over again. But it is really the main thing that has given me a sense of peace. Like if I even look at tomorrow or the next week or, you know, I have a scan in three weeks, you can't, you cannot live from that place. You know, you have to be right here. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a, it's, um, that is the work, I guess, is just continually reminding yourself to be here now. Yeah. Thank you, Ram Das. Thank you, Ram Das. Rest <laughs> in peace. Yeah. What did he say? Um, he was going into a, it's a, a continual meditation, or I forget the exact words, but it was beautiful about I death. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm sure he's just fine. I don't think he's. Oh yeah, he's. You know, I think he was fine. He was one of those handful of people who was able to walk right in the door without fear of you know he 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 just knew what I, I don't know it, to be that firmly in your belief about something mm -hmm. must just give you such peace. You know, just like, it's, it's cool. Whatever happens, it's cool. I mean, I've always been so jealous of people that seem so, doesn't matter what it is. You could be Mormon and I'm still like, really? You believe yeah. that you're going to go live on your own planet? Like yeah. <laughs> that must feel um, like just to have that conviction about something. That's yeah. It's amazing. Faith can do great things. It, it really can. And I will say that when I really was sure I was going to die, like sure, there was this weird calm that I had. It was like, um, it was really the closest thing to peace and just this incredible amount of love that I felt. Um, there is a website about near-death experiences. I know this is, this is weird, but um. No, I love that. I've I've done some reading on NDEs. Yeah, yeah, so many hours I've spent reading these stories, but it is really true. Like I thought I was kind of crazy, and I think that's why I started, you know, reading about it or wanting to hear other people's stories. But I, I there is this kind of weird calm that comes over you, um, and I haven't I haven't really felt that since. But it was. Um, I don't know, just that there is something so much bigger out there that that our human brain, we just don't have the capacity to know what it is. But I do feel pretty certain that that is the case, that there is something bigger going on. Yeah, I feel that too, having, having not had an actual near-death experience. But... Mm -hmm. I've had lots of opportunities to, to, to 
almost, you know, I've put, I've put myself at risk enough times and had close calls where I was able to think along those lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and also just everything I've read about people who have walked that line or crossed over and come back. And, mm-hmm. but the universal thing is love. The thing that everybody talks about is love. And if you know, that's, what's waiting for you, then that if you can foster that belief and believe, you know, really truly feel that that's what's waiting on the other side, mm-hmm. then all the fear can eventually dissipate and you can just rest assured that you're going to be okay. No, that is, that is truly what, what has gotten me through some very dark times that I have already experienced that. And I know, I know that that's there. Um, yeah. I think that is, that is huge. I'm, I'm really not scared of death. I'm scared of dying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can go down a million different ways about how that's actually going to unfold. Um, right. Um, and I'm, I don't want to leave the people that I love. It's kind of like the ultimate FOMO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm not scared about death. I'm really not. Yeah, I feel the same way. And yeah. I, and I feel like I always have, I don't, I've just always, I, I, it makes me sad to think about the bereaved. And that's it. Yeah. No, there's your husband. Your husband. Oh, you can hear him. He's screaming on a sales call. <laughs> um, well, I'm looking at the time. I'm thinking yeah. we should probably wrap up. I know. I, I feel like I, I could talk to you forever, but likewise, yeah. well, let, let's let's talk again off mic. Yes, and, uh, please. We can talk about all this good stuff forever and ever. It really does. Yeah, yeah it, could, it could go continuously to the end of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thank you so much, Lindsay. I really appreciate you sharing your story and being so open. And it's really, I really, I'm going to want to listen back to this again and again and, and learn those lessons and be reminded uh, you're, you're quite a model for how to live in spite of it all. Well, thank you so much for saying that. Thank you for being able to go to all of those places and to really talk about just everything. That's an incredible quality you have. And it's part of what makes your podcast so, so good. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's truly my pleasure. I mean, that's, that's for me, what human interaction is about mm-hmm. yeah. to be able yeah. to go as far as anyone wants to go. And uh, I really, it's hugely valuable for me. Yeah. Uh, I always appreciate anybody who's willing to meet me there. I'm willing to meet you there anytime for sure. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yes. Thank Um, you. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my new friend, Lindsay, who I think is a shining example of how amazing people can be. Um, I'm really um, 
moved by what we're capable of. And uh, I believe we can overcome many, many things. So um, we're all sort of being tested right now. And uh, I think that we can rise to the occasion. And when we're feeling like we can't, we can reach out to one another and get some help, which is something that I can advise others to do and find it very challenging to do myself. But I'm going to try. I am trying. And uh, this podcast is one of the ways that I'm able to feel somewhat connected. I at least get to talk to one person at a time almost every single week. And that is uh, fuel for me. That keeps my heart and soul alive. Um, especially when I can't see anybody face to face except for my daughter who is, oh, my favorite person on earth. But um, she is literally the only person I can hug. And she's the only person that I see with any sort of uh, regularity these days. And I think a lot of people are in the same boat or even in uh, less fortunate boats where they don't get to see anyone. So if you're one of those people or whoever you are, please call or in some way connect with other humans. I think it's pretty essential for us uh, to stay feeling okay in ourselves, remembering that we are part of a community. We are monkeys. We got to hug each other. Uh, Okay, so if you feel like this podcast is something that you like, then please share it. Tell others about it. Uh, If you feel like you want to support it slash me um, and my endeavors, go to patreon.com slash outspoken podcast. And there you will find multiple tiers and rewards for each tier. Um, And even if you don't want to give any money, just go there and check it out. I made a video uh, that gives you sort of an idea of what what this means to me. And um, it was fun to make. And uh, I think you might enjoy watching it. And lastly, uh, I want to call back to uh, the last episode, episode 80, with my friend Brett Ingram. Um, if you haven't listened to it, you should. You shall. And... Um, if even if you have, you should now go back to his website, which is brettingram.org, B-R-E-T-T-I-N-G-R-A-M. And both of his documentaries are now available to stream. Uh, before you could just, you could only buy them on DVD, but now you can actually rent them and watch them at home. Uh, they're both amazing Uh so go there and there's a heading called stream now, which you'll see on his homepage and you can choose one or both of the movies. And that is that. Uh, thanks again to Lindsay. Thanks to all my guests over the last couple of years. Thank you to all of you, the listeners. Thank you to my beloved, uh, family and friends and fellow humans. Uh, we, whether we feel like we're all in it together or not, we are. So let's let's start acting like it. All right. Love you. See you next week. Bye.